Friends, we can be sure today our God is a saving God. We can be certain of that fact. We can be confident of that truth. Our God is the God who saves. It is uh, who he is. It is what he does. It pleases him to save sinners. This book, our Bible, is the revelation of that. It is the record of that. Uh, it tells us that our holy God, the creator God of all things, that he sees the plight of man, he sees the helplessness of sinful people, and so he sends his son Jesus. His name actually means the Lord saves. He sends Jesus to come as our Savior. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, it says that he came to seek and to save that which is lost. That is the mission of Jesus. That is why he comes, to seek and to save that which is lost. Understand today, our God is gracious. He is kind to sinners, and he desires all people to be saved. He tells us that. He shows us that. Today, there is a growing movement that teaches God doesn't want all people to be saved. Well, friends, be sure today, that is not as what is revealed to us here in his word. We are in a study of the book of Revelation. In the study of the book of Revelation, we see that God, he is a God of justice. That is very clear as we move through this book. He is a God of Yes, of judgment. It means he does and he will judge sin. That is the reality of our God. Uh, he is holy. Uh, he is just. And he will and he does judge sin. I want to tell you we are thankful for that truth. But you know what I see uh, over and over again as we move through uh, our study in the book of Revelation, I see that he is also a gracious God who yearns for the salvation of sinful people. Now, there are some that wouldn't want to use that word, but I believe it is the truth. He yearns, he actually yearns for the salvation of lost people. And in love and in grace and in kindness and in mercy, he wants people to be saved. Did you hear what I said? Our God wants people to be saved. Praise the Lord for that. Thank the Lord for that truth. Today, we're going to see that again in our study. Today, our message is entitled, Last Witnesses of the Lamb. Last Witnesses of the Lamb. Today, we're going to move into the 11th chapter. We're in chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Revelation chapter 11, today, verses 1 through 13. Last Witnesses of the of the Lamb. I'm going to ask if you would, if you would stand with me in the honor and the reverence of the reading of God's Word. Revelation chapter 11, beginning in the first verse, God's Word says this Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. For it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. 
These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they will have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they finished, have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and the tribes and the tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. Verse 13, And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come today, we are thankful for today. We're thankful for the Lord's day. We're thankful for the day that we celebrate a risen, resurrected Savior. We're thankful that we have hope today in the finished work of our Lord Jesus. Lord, we, we come today, and I pray that you have been blessed in our meeting. I pray that you have been glorified here, praised here. I pray that you would be known here as well. I pray as we begin to study your word. Lord, I pray that it would not be a normal event, that it wouldn't be some mundane passing on of information, explaining of verses, but I pray, Lord, that the living word that is sharper than a double-edged sword, that is active today, that your word would speak to us, that it would convict us, and it would shape us, and it would build us. And I pray, Lord, that it would bear much fruit. I pray for some that will hear this message that do not know you as Lord and Savior. I pray that today in the hearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that today might be the day of their salvation. Pray that any hindrance to that would be removed. Lord, again, we ask that you would speak, that you would move in this hour. We trust it to you, and I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As we resume today, as we start back in our study today, we have heard the promise that with the sounding of the seventh trumpet, there will be delay no longer. That's what the Bible says, that with the sounding of the seventh trumpet, there will be delay no longer in the mysteries of God. Now, these mysteries were as to the time and events of Jesus' coming again and God's judgment of sin, the promised day of the Lord. After we heard that promise, remember John is, in a sense, recommissioned in his role of relaying these happenings. And so we've heard the promise, and then there's a section here, really kind of a timeout, when John is 
recommissioned in his role of telling, relaying these happenings. I'm going to go back to chapter 10, verse 11. It says this, And they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And so that's where we end off last week. Uh, Today we start back with the 11th chapter. Now let me just go ahead and tell you this as we begin the 11th chapter. Uh, I was reading this week, and I'll have to warn you, uh, I found that there are many that consider the 11th chapter of Revelation the most complicated chapter of the Revelation to interpret. Now that must be because the rest of the chapters are so easy to interpret uh, that they would say that, but that's what some are saying, that this chapter is the most difficult to interpret. All right, let's go to the verses starting in chapter 11, verse 1. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Uh, In the original language here, the measuring rod was understood to have been a reed. That would have been common to the area. And so it was most likely a reed. And so this reed that was going to be used to measure, it is given to John. A voice, presumably the angel says, get up and measure or number, that's another translation, number or count three things. That is the message given to John. It says the temple of God, the altar, and the people who worship in it. Now before we move on, there are some who say the temple was the second temple in Jerusalem. Uh, We know that temple has been destroyed. There are some that say it is referring to that temple. There are some others that say that it is a symbolic temple, and that's all that it is, is a symbolic temple. There are some that say that it symbolically represents the church. Uh, There are others still that say it is the heavenly temple. And so it is talking about or referring to the heavenly temple. I believe the truth is the Bible tells us that Scripture tells us before Jesus comes again, there will be an actual literal temple standing in Jerusalem. Uh, This will have to be built uh, very soon before or during the tribulation time. And so I believe this is talking about an actual literal temple standing in Jerusalem. Now, I do not believe that John is measuring or is gathering the information just for the passing on of information. Sometimes we have in the Old Testament a description of the temple there, and the measurements, I believe, are are told to us as the passing on of information. I believe that's not the point here. I believe in this episode he is marking off those that are in the favor of God, those that are going to be protected by God. And it includes these three groups, the temple, the altar, and those worshiping. Now, the reason I believe that is because of what we find in the second verse. Let's go to the second verse. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. For it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. The speaker tells John, as you're measuring, however, do not measure 
of the outer court of the temple. Now, it gives an explanation there. It says the nations. Uh, some Bible translations say uh, the Gentiles. Uh, it, it's referring to or it means the evil people or the people who do not worship God. He says that they will overrun and control the courtyard and the city of Jerusalem. Uh, it says they will do this, and by the context we know, uh, this is the three and a half years before Jesus uh, comes again, before the second coming of Jesus. So those that do not worship God for these three and a half years, they will overrun this courtyard and the city of Jerusalem prior to the coming of Jesus. And so the second half of the seven years of tribulation, these people are going to wreak havoc on the city of Jerusalem. It's called here in this verse, the holy city. By not being measured, it shows that they are out of the favor, out of the protection of God. Listen to those two verses again now. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. For it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. All right, go into verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now here in the third verse, we are introduced to and we are told of two witnesses. Now the word witness means one who knows and who testifies to. Uh, this is a testifier to what they know. And so either they have seen the thing, they have observed the thing, but they know about it, and so they bear witness to the thing. They testify to the thing. One who knows and testifies to. It says uh, 1260 days. Again, three and a half years that they will prophesy, these witnesses will prophesy in sackcloth. Sackcloth was a sign of repentance. Uh, it was a sign of sorrow, deep sorrow, and repentance. All right, the next question is, who are the two witnesses? Now, there's much discussion about the identity of the two witnesses. There are some that would say uh, they are symbolic of the old and the New Testament. They would say that's what it's referring to, that it is symbolic in nature, and the witnesses are the witnesses of Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some say that the witnesses represent the church, and so uh, they are the lampstands, and so it is the witness of the church. Uh, the early church tradition believed that these were the Old Testament prophets, Enoch and Elijah. They did not die, and so the early church taught that they are back, and they are there now to testify, and then they will die. Uh, others say that these are Moses and Elijah. Uh, they get that from their actions, the things that they do told to us in verse 5. Uh, there are others, and they say that the two witnesses are Zerubbabel and Joshua, and they get that from the description that we're going to look at in Verse 4, there are many possibilities that are given as to the identity of the witnesses. Here's what I believe. I believe they are unknown, literal, actual people. I believe they are Moses and Elijah-like, 
in their actions. I believe there is Zerubbabel and Joshua like in their mission, but I believe they are yet unknown individuals. I don't think we know who these two witnesses are. Verse three again, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Verse four, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, uh, verse 4, it is a reference to Zechariah chapter 4. Uh, if you go to Zechariah chapter 4, in it, it describes the ministry of Zerubbabel and Joshua who sought to restore Israel to the promised land. They sought, their ministry was, they sought to prepare Israel for the promised land. So let me stop here for just a second. So with all that we do not know about these witnesses, here's what we do know. In this day of wickedness, in this day of rebellion and evilness, these witnesses, they faithfully called people to repent and to escape the judgment of God by turning to Jesus. That's what we know. That's the mission that's described to us in the reference to the Old Testament passage. These witnesses, they faithfully called people to repent to escape the judgment of God by turning to Jesus. Folks, be sure and understand this. There is only one way to enter the promised land. And even in this evil generation, even in this evil day, God's grace is known as he commissions these two witnesses who call the nation, who call the people to repent and turn to Jesus. Listen to me. Our God is a saving God. Even in the midst of their rebellion, he commissions two witnesses to tell them of the grace of God shown to the person of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something right here. Did you know we've been commissioned the same? Sometimes we get so busy in the things of life, we get so caught up in the things of life, we miss that. Did you know we have the same mission that they have? Do you know we have the same message? The Bible says, and you shall be my witnesses to Jerusalem and to Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. Did you know those outside of Christ today, they are just as lost, their demise is just as sure, and God's judgment upon them is just as real? We have the same commission today as followers of Christ. We have the same message, turn to Jesus and escape the coming judgment of God. Today at the end of this church age, may we be found faithful. All right, going to verse 5. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if enemy, anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. In that evil, violent day, these witnesses are evidently empowered for the mission. I want you to see that right here as the time draws short, as time is imperative, as the mission is so important, God wasn't going to let these two go and fail at their mission. Their mission was not going to be uh, incomplete uh, before, before God. And so he gives them this ability. He prepares them in 
this way. Verse 6, they have the power to shut up the sky so that the rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. That's, the, that's what Elijah did. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague. That's what Moses did as often as they desire. Verse 6 tells us also at their disposal, they are given tremendous signs to show the power of God and to validate the truth of their message. And so they're commissioned to be a testifier, to be a witness, but God gives them the ability to protect themselves. He gives them the ability to validate the truth of their message. All right, verse 7. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. The beast from the abyss, it's not Satan. Uh, the beast will be described coming up uh, in chapter 13. But for today, understand the beast is empowered by Satan to glorify Satan and to, dis to slander and to destroy the truth of the gospel. The word beast here, uh, it translates violent beast of prey. It is a ferocious beast of prey. He was, the Bible says, against these witnesses. He overcomes the witnesses, and it says, and he kills them. He actually, literally, physically kills them. They are killed. Now, right here, I want to point out two things. Uh, two things. One thing to remember uh, in, this, in these verses. One thing to see in these verses. The first thing to remember is this. Listen very carefully. The battle against the truth is a supernatural battle. And I don't know, sometimes we, we, we overlook that, we forget that, but the battle that rages against the truth of God's word and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is a supernatural battle. Satan and the demons of hell cannot stand the truth of God's word. They abhor, they hate the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they war against it. We need to understand today, we need to remember today, it is a supernatural battle that goes on. When I started this sermon series, before I preached the very first sermon, my great pastor friend told me that preaching it comes with great attacks. It has been, I'll tell you one after another, most of those no one will ever know about, but the truth is this, upholding the truth of a gracious Savior, upholding the truth of salvation by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, upholding the truth that there is good news in a dark world, upholding the truth that Jesus very shortly is coming again, it is a supernatural business that is attacked by Satan. Second thing we see is this, and I think we need to be sure of this to see it. The mission was completed. Did you catch that? Did you see that in the verse? The mission was completed in God's power, in his enablement, in his protection. It says here, when the mission was finished, when they had finished their testimony, the mission is completed. 
Verse 7, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Verse 8, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. The city again is Jerusalem. Here it tells us that it's also symbolically called Sodom. Understand that is the city of moral filth. It's also symbolically called Egypt. That is a place of false worship, slavery, and oppression. And it says that their dead bodies will lie there in the street. Now, let me explain this so we can understand it. In John's day, in the context that this is being revealed in, the greatest sign of disrespect, a great sign of disgrace was to be left exposed, unburied after death. Nobody cared for you. Evidently, whatever your crime was, it was so, so heinous that they would leave you to be exposed. And one of the great signs of disgrace was to be left exposed, unburied after your death. Notice at the end of verse 8, it says, where also their Lord was crucified. Now, when we hear that, we might pass over that very quickly. We might think, well, that's just another identifying factor describing the city of Jerusalem. Uh, I, I think it's bigger than that. I think it's more awesome than that. This happens where also their Lord was crucified. Now, I want you to see this. In the same place where Jesus died in great grace, they died to testify to that grace. In the same place where they thought that they had silenced the truth once on that dreadful day, they now thought that they had silenced the truth again. In the same place where Jesus' blood purchased redemption and life, their blood now testifies to the great Savior of redemption and life. And so understand, it is in the very same city, the same place. Verse 9. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. They leave them there in shame. They leave them there dead in the streets in disgust. These witnesses of the grace of Jesus who called this city to repent, they lie dead in the street. Verse 10. And those who dwell on the earth, listen to this. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Verse 10 tells us that the crowds felt tormented by these prophets. That's what it says at the end of the verse. These crowds, all the world, they felt tormented by these prophets. Now, maybe that was because of the plagues that they ordained. Uh, I think it was more than that. You see, I want you to see this, understand this. The preaching of righteousness always stirs hate. 
Do you understand that? Do you know that? The preaching of righteousness, it always stirs hate. The call to see sin and to turn and to repent from sin, it always breeds anger in people. And they come and in their arrogance, they, they brew up and they have hatred to, against the call to repent and to turn from sin. You watch these people. As their last opportunity to hear the gospel passes by, as the last preachers of the good news lie dead, silent in the street, exposed in the sun, they celebrate the chance to hear the gospel has ceased, and they celebrate, they cheer, and they send gifts to one another. Oh, what they've done. Oh, what they've done. They've cut themselves off. They've locked themselves out. They've silenced the good news of a gracious God. Oh, what they've done. It's not over. Verse 11. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. Three and a half days later, and with the entire world watching in, God raises them to life again, lung again, fills their air again, fills their lungs. They stand back to their feet. Can you imagine the picture? They rise up, they stand back to their feet. It says great fear fell upon them. They are panic stricken in what they see. They are terrified as the two witnesses stand in life again. Verse 12. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. I believe here in verse 12, this is now the voice of Jesus. And as they have stood faithfully in their calling, as they have endured now even to the point of death, their beloved Savior Jesus looks down upon them and he says, Come up here And those who hated them, those that celebrated their demise, will watch them, the Bible says, rise in victory. Now I want you to imagine these two witnesses. I want you to imagine this day. It's a literal day that's going to happen. Can you imagine this as they begin to rise there in that cloud? They look down and they look back down on the city of Jerusalem. And it is over. The pain is over. The suffering is over. Three and a half years they have endured. Three and a half years they have preached the grace of God. And now the mission is complete. Can you imagine as they look down on Jerusalem? But can you also imagine as they stand on that cloud as they look up? And as they look up, there are these two witnesses faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they look up, and all of the hosts of heaven are there. There the throne of God and majesty and glory is there. Though the 24 elders, they are all there. And there at the center of it all stands the Lamb. The Lamb who was slain, but who has overcome. And can you imagine as they rise on this cloud, as they look to the sky, as they see their Lamb, can you imagine the joy that they have all all glory to the Lamb. All glory to the Lamb. He is worthy. He is worthy. Can you imagine that sight? Can you imagine the victory of that day? It is finished. They have finished their task. And now they go to glory. And there is their Lamb, Jesus. Verse 13. And in that hour, the enemies are watching on. 
And in that hour, there was a great earthquake. And a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Interesting verse. As this scene takes place, there's a great earthquake. 7,000 folks were killed in the city in that earthquake. It says those that have lived, they gave glory to God. Now there are some that say, well, that means they simply revered God. Seeing what has happened, seeing the terribleness of the day, they have feared God. And they would say that's what it was. They, they weren't converted. They just feared God. They revered him in the, in the sight of all that had happened. Let me tell you, I don't think so. I believe this from the wording here. He could have said they revered. The Bible said they could have, they could have feared. But here's what I believe. I believe in their terror. I believe in their shock of the events of this day. They now remember the message that they once heard. And they remember the faithful preaching of these two witnesses for three and a half years. And I believe the faithfulness of these two guys now ascended to heaven that it bears fruit. And I believe they repented, terrified, yes, but remembering the message of the grace of God, I believe they repented to the glory of the God of heaven. Folks, our God is a saving God. Our God is a gracious, kind, saving God. Let me tell you something. Time is growing short. Did you know that? Time is growing short. Have you watched the news lately? Time is growing short. So you know, there's not one event that needs to happen that needs to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church. Time is growing short. So I want to tell you what we take away from this message today is this. Listen to me. Two things. First is this. Time is growing short, so turn to Jesus. I don't know where you think your hope's at. I don't know where you think you're going to find hope, but I want to tell you the truth is this. There's hope only in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And there's peace only in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I don't know what's keeping you awake at night. I don't know what's stirring in your soul. But there's only peace going to be found in the finished work of Jesus. Let me tell you this. He died for your sin. He's paid for your sin. In his grace, he offers you the salvation that he gives by faith in him, by belief in him. Listen, time is growing short. If you haven't turned to Jesus, turn to Jesus. Do it right now. Turn to Jesus. Do it right now. Second thing is this. Time is growing short. Time is growing short, so tell others of Jesus. You know what? Your lost friends, your lost co-workers, your lost neighbors, maybe some in your very own family, those outside of Christ, they will perish. You know what? We have the same commissioning that these two guys have to tell them of the grace of God, to tell them of a Savior that will forgive and restore and renew. Tell people of Jesus. Listen, we're going to go back to work this week. We're going to go back to the things we have to do this week, but I want to do it as we do in, in faithful obedience to the commission that we carry, tell them of Jesus. Tell them of Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, we come, and I'm thankful for your kindness shown to us. And I'm thankful there's salvation, forgiveness, restoration, renewal, not in any work that we would have to do, not in joining the right church, not in checking off a list that, 
that appeases somebody or even appeases you, but acknowledging there's nothing we can do to be saved, acknowledging it's in your grace and your work alone, and turning to you in faith that you'll save us, that you'll call us your child, that you'll renew us, that you'll take our shame and our guilt, you carry it far away. You offer us eternal life, the forgiveness of sin. Lord, I pray for some that are listening today, I pray that in the hearing of your word, in the urgency of the day, that they would turn to you and receive you in faith. I pray that any hindrance to that would be pushed away today. And today, they would turn, they would find your grace and find your truth. I pray for us as a people, us as a church. I pray that, Lord, that we would be stirred in our souls, that we'd be urgent, maybe mindful of a specific one that needs to know, that has to know that we would tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray in this coming time of invitation that you would work, that you would move, that you'd be glorified through it. Lord, we tell you we love you, we praise you, we worship you, and I pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close our time together with a time of response, a time of invitation. I, I believe it's the most important time of this entire Lord's Day. Yes, we preach the Word of God. Yes, we hold up the Word of God, but I want to tell you, it is for a decision. And that decision is this, either walk with Christ, follow Christ, trust Christ, or reject Jesus Christ. Turn away from him, walk away. I want to tell you the good news of today is this. God's grace is offered to you right now. His forgiveness for your sin is offered to you right now. He'll restore you right now. He'll give you eternal life right now. The Bible says not of any work that you're going to have to do, not of anything that you're going to have to, to submit and impress somebody, but by simple faith in Jesus. If you'll trust Jesus right now, he'll save you. If you'll claim him as your Lord right now, he'll save you. If you've never done that, I want to tell you, I want to urge you to do that right now. If you don't understand that, you come, and I'll show you what God's word says. Let's settle that right now. Settle it right now. Turn to Jesus. Maybe you're here and you've trusted in Christ, but you've never followed a believer's baptism. The Bible always says that it's by immersion, that it's after the point of our salvation, not part of our salvation, that it testifies to what we believe of Christ, that he died for us. He's been buried and he lives again. It's also a testimony of who we are in Christ, that we've died with Christ and we now live and walk in the power of Christ. And so maybe you need to come and say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. Yes, I've trusted in Christ. Maybe it was sometime further back. Maybe it was recently. But you've never followed in obedience to Christ and believer's baptism. You come as well. We'll set a date. It'll be a great day of celebration pointing to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Maybe you're looking for a church home if you've prayed about it and you believe God has led you here, you come and together we'll unite and we'll uphold his word. We'll preach his good news. We'll point to his glory until he comes back and gets us. We'll try to be faithful in his power upholding his gospel. Maybe you're here today and you're facing something altogether different. Maybe it's something you don't talk about. Maybe it's something others know about. Maybe you want to come pray here at an altar this morning. Maybe you want to come pray with me. The Bible says nothing is too big. Nothing is is too small, nothing is too great for his throne of mercy and of grace. We're going to stand and sing. If God has spoken to you, if he's speaking to you, if you have a decision to make, you step out. You come on. I'll meet you here at the front. You come on. I'll meet you here.